Hi, and welcome to the B2B Tech Marketing Talks podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Bayless. Today's theme is opportunities in the channel. I'm very excited today because I'm joined by Jay McBain. Welcome, Jay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jay, you're the chief analyst at Canalis. You've previously been principal analyst of channels, partnerships, and ecosystem at Forrester. You've had leadership positions in channel SaaS companies. I was hoping we could kick off our conversation with an overview of Canalis and what you do, your, what your focus is, and what your guys' mission is as a company. Yeah, sure. Canalis is a top 10 research and analyst firm around the world. We have a niche, and our niche, Canalis, is Latin for channel. So this company is over two decades old, and it's always focused on go-to-market and routes-to-market. You've got big companies like Gartner and Forrester and IDT and others that are more generic. And they'll touch on different topics for different buyers like CIOs and CMOs and stuff. We're pretty much focused on the partner first. The vendor that supports the partner, which is 35,000 today with channel managers and with uh, channel programs and running channel technology. We're focused on the distributors that support those vendors and partners. And there's hundreds upon hundreds of those today across the world. So we're in this technology market and the 70.3% of the $5 trillion last year that businesses and governments spent on tech and telco go to, through, and with the channel. And that's what we do. It's incredible. And the pace at which you're publishing research is just phenomenal. It feels like every day there's new insights coming out from you. Tell me more about Microsoft Inspire today. Yeah, so Microsoft Inspire today announced a whole bunch of things around generative AI, which most people would have expected. But there's a brand new partner program around generative AI. And you're wondering, what does that mean? They just came out with a new point system last October. Microsoft has the largest channel of any company in the world with 470,000 partners and 400 new ones to join every day. But they're starting to show the education, the training, the certifications, the competencies, all of the different monetization or the multiplier around generative AI. How do partners make money? And then how do they get recognized in this case by Microsoft? You'll soon be hearing from AWS and Google and, and IBM and others. And the idea is this is a whole new program that wouldn't have looked anything like programs we've seen in the last 43 years. So again, what does this mean for the partner? What does this mean for other vendors that are either in this space or, or looking at this space? And how do we make sense of this new economics of partnering? Generative AI is such a hot topic, and this is something I wanted to bring up today we're seeing partners starting to come to grips with how do they use large language models and how do they incorporate this into their day-to-day -day activity and their service models. Do you see any movement in this space in the channel already, or is it still we're feeling our way into it? The channel overall, there's millions of partners of different types that all the GSIs, global system integrators, have put out big announcements of their generative AI practices. And some like KPMG have signed the big deal with Microsoft that was announced not too long ago. And yeah, from the large perspective, but what we are figuring out, if I go back to this multiplier, is where the opportunity actually is. We know that generative AI, much like infrastructure as a service, software as a service, security, 
is going to be in seven layers out of the gate. You're not just going to go buy business version of ChatGPT or a business version of BART or BARD, sorry, business version of Watson X from IBM. You don't just go buy that as a SKU. What's going to happen is you have to think through as a partner, all of the compliance, all of the security, all of the data. And, and you're going to work with companies like uh, Snowflake or Databricks and other companies that you may not have worked as much with in the past around the large language models. You're probably not going to host these models. You're probably not going to be in charge of feeding these models and writing the algorithms, but there are partners that will. The average company today of mid-market uh, size or larger has seven partners they trust. And one of the main thing partners take from this is there's probably going to be six other partners in the room and you're not competing over the same thing, but the larger opportunity around it can really feed all the partners and being able to work and co-innovate together, create value together, leverage each other's network effects as you can take this to other companies, either around the world, in the same industry, same buyer type, same segment or sector, same kind of seven layer stack expertise, same delivery models. So there's so many areas to go take this and build your own ecosystem and build a practice that can take you to new heights. It feels like such a new era because as many business leaders are just thinking about the unwrapped chat GPT or BARD, as you called it, the, the opportunity really here is looking at how are other organizations going to put a wrapper over it and infuse it into offerings that evolve them into new heights that partners can take to market, which is fascinating. And it's all happening very fast. Yeah. And this isn't the new, this isn't the first time a new technology is taken over the consumer realm. You're reading about it in the New York Times and you're watching about it on the news. And this, this has become a consumer level frenzy of which every one of your clients is asking, okay, can you translate all that consumer stuff, Terminator 3 and, and Skynet? And can you take all that and tell me from a business perspective what I should be doing? But 10 years ago, we were in a flurry around internet of things. A year ago, we were in a flurry around the metaverse, around automation, robotics, self-driving, yeah. drones. I could take through 3D print. I could take you through dozens of examples of these emerging technologies, promising huge things for partners of, of different types. But what you'll find out is all boats don't rise. Internet of Things, 10 years later, is still not a common practice across the channel. There are companies making billions of dollars mm -hmm bringing in plastic from China and getting it out there and building out the 5G networks and building out all the different edge to cloud technologies and stuff. But the, it never became a broad-based opportunity, even though you would think that every one of your clients could succeed with Internet of Things. It really wasn't true. It was very specific to certain industries, very specific to certain size of companies. Your flower shop down the road, other than maybe a beacon on the wall, had no use for it. So this is, we, we've got to figure this out with generative AI as well. While we think it's going to change the world and very important people are writing long letters to governments asking to pause it and we're coming up to Armageddon here. But the fact of the matter is partners have been through right. this enough times to step back and ask important questions, intelligent questions, and very quantitative questions. You know, it is important right now and customers are asking a lot of questions, but 
how much money is there to be made in consulting in generative AI? How much money is there to be made in design and architecture? At the point of sale, any kind of co-innovation in those seven layers, is there any kind of resale opportunity or is most of this going to go through a marketplace? What's the opportunity to make money in that marketplace? Every 30 days forever. It's not just going to be part of your managed services contract, you know, with, along with help desk and your security firewall and all the other things you're doing. You're not just going to add Gen AI as your 21st thing that you're going to help them with for that $113 a month you're charging per device. So you're, you're starting to think, how is the managed services going to wrap around this? The implementations, the integrations, the compliance, the security, the continuity. How do I charge for all that? How are customers ready to buy that today? And who are they going to be buying it from? And again, let me ask intelligent questions about where the money is to be made, given this trend and given the... It's good to take that commercial aspect because it really diminishes the media frenzy around the ethical questions or the Armageddon, as you put it. Very insightful there. You earlier mentioned the seven layers of technology. We here at Filament are working at a nexus of enabling vendors and their partners to go to market together. Oftentimes that's with multiple vendors or strategic alliances and their partners who are end user facing. When Canalis published the seven layers of technology, which is made up of the distributors and the cloud marketplaces and telcos and aggregators and so forth, that was a real aha moment because it visually gave us the ability to show what is happening and the way that the different partners sit alongside each other. And I think I even see the poster on your wall of that image. In what ways can these partners or in what ways do you see these partners co-creating together, co-marketing, co-selling? in ways that they traditionally might not have when they were accustomed to going it, going to market by themselves. Yeah, the seven-layer research was just to show that if you focus on the way money changes hands, then that's all you focus on, the point of sale. For 43 years, our industry's actually been pretty linear in terms of how that works. When I sold laptops for Lenovo and IBM, 80-plus percent of our business would go through resellers. And, and retailers, and, and that's how money changed hands. So you set up programs and you set up coverage models, and that's the way we've been working for decades and decades. And this is all changing pretty, pretty rapidly. Obviously, the cloud has introduced cloud-based distributors that are distributing bits, not atoms. They don't have distribution centers. They don't have 3PL logistics. They, but there's a ton of orchestration that needs to happen. So there's the fastest growing distributor in the world, like a PAX-8, doesn't have traditional distribution value across logistics and supply chain, but have a ton of value for orchestrating the outcomes of what clients are asking partners for. And that's why they're growing so quickly. They have a bunch of competitors around the world that are also growing quickly. You look at the next layer, like telco, that convergence with IT. Telco services are still larger than IT services. Not a lot of people know that that won't be a few years from now, but there's still a trillion and a half dollars of telco services. The 25, what used to be called master agents, now tech solution brokers, have consolidated down to about four of them now. Really large and very technology-focused groups. That is another layer of distribution. Marketplaces are growing at 86% compounded. They almost double in size every year. 
There'll be $45 billion spent through marketplaces in the cloud uh, by 2025, a year and a half from now. AWS is going to be a top 10 distributor around the world, along with TD Cynics and Ingram on that list. So this is changing rapidly. And, and the buyer of technology will be a millennial in, in less than two years. These are iPad kids, digital first. And how credits are going to work and how these new, how money changes hands completely changes the economics of what we've done for 43 years. New programs, new relationships. When you talk about the intersection of vendors and distributors and partners, all of the funding that takes place. We just talked about Microsoft's new program today. Almost no money at the point of sale because they're not selling AI. It's embedded in other things. And, and the money and the economics is different because there's no skew. So in that world, we're talking multipliers. We're talking marketplaces. There's a lot of changing. And I go down from there. There's four other categories of how money changes hands. And it's important to know that what's fueled this industry for decades since the very beginning, August the 12th, 1981, till now is changing pretty radically. And it's changing so quickly that in the next three to five years, it's going to be radically different in terms of how we make money as partners, how vendors support that and how distributors find a spot to orchestrate and, and add value so that they remain very relevant in that new future. It's really fascinating because from our point of view, we're starting to see business leaders within the individual organizations start to wrap their head around how do we structurally shift to meet this change. And from a resourcing perspective, even they're starting to figure out if we're going to market together with multiple partners because we're all in service of some end user down the chain and we're all trying to sustain a longer term sales cycle to reach that end user business, how do we sustain it together that makes sense? And we might see in the B2B space, let's say 12, 18, 24 month sales cycles, if you've got multiple partners in play, Nobody really owns the sustaining of that sales cycle across all of them. And so it's fascinating to watch business leaders try to figure out, should sales own this? Should marketing own this? Do we need market, partner marketing teams in the way that SaaS is starting, uh, not starting, but ha, uh, has really shifted into their and leaned into their partner ecosystems? It's hard. It's a hard change because they haven't done that for decades. And it's fascinating to watch it take place. It really is. And to pick on SaaS for a minute, because that's where you were going, 75% of SaaS today is bought by business leaders. And it makes sense that a CRO buys a CRM, that a CMO buys a marketing automation platform, plus the 11,039 other MarTech and AdTech tools on the stack. It makes sense that a customer success buys a service now, a HR buyer buys a work day. It just makes sense. And they're spending over half their time on tech now as opposed to their day jobs. So this is just a, a tech economy where the people, the companies they work for, regardless of what industry are becoming more technology companies. So everything's converging at once into this space. But let's pick on one of the largest SaaS companies, Salesforce. Here's a company that is almost 100% direct. Talk about how money changes hands. Only in a few places in Asia Pacific do they have indirect, and they might be growing that a little bit more based on some recent announcements. But let's assume that $32 billion a year is direct, mostly. 
And that's larger in size and revenue than SAP. It's, they got to a valuation higher than Oracle for a while. So th this is big time stuff. And they got there without a channel selling their stuff. But at the same time, they're recruiting 500,000 partners. So why the heck would a partner sign up to somebody where you can't sell their product? Every dollar of Salesforce comes with $6.19 of ecosystem or economic value. If that customer has seven partners they wow. trust, you're all staring at the $6.19. So they're spending a hundred grand on Salesforce consumption or subscription. And now there's $600,000 for all of us to divide amongst ourselves in richly paid services. Like we're talking 75% margin services. And we can break that down before, during, and after the transaction. We can break it down into co-innovation and the six other ISVs that'll be sold with every dollar of Salesforce, break it down into the strategic and business alliances. But yeah, you're going to have an ecosystem leader. You're going to have a partner business development person that looks at your customers, your TAM, figures out who the seven people surrounding them are, figuring out who the most likely non-competitive companies you should be integrating with. And here's another thing that's brand new in the last six months. Every buyer in every industry is becoming integration first, ahead of price, ahead of service, ahead of mm. any other part of the criteria. We're integration first. So we're buying tools now, not in terms of how much they cost, but how well they work with our already established system that we put in place, the layers we already have. And so flip gears into consumer, 91% of us today would not buy a car unless it has Apple CarPlay. This in our personal lives and our professional lives, we're integration first. And partners need to be integration first because that's what your buyer is. They don't want a single throat to choke. They don't want a trusted advisor without a plural. They literally want you to plug in and add your skills, add your capabilities, build out their capacity, and they're free to spend upwards of that $6 for every dollar outsourcing some or all of that technology services that they need to do to be successful. And that's it. That's everybody needs to look at this. And do you hire more direct sales people? Do you hire more marketing people? Or do you start looking at your customer and who surrounds them in the first 28 moments on average before they make a decision? Who surrounds them at that point of sale? Because it really doesn't matter for the first 30 days of a subscription or consumption model of where the money goes, who collects the money. But then every 30 days after that, your retention, your renewals, your upsell, your cross-sell, your enrichment, your entire lifetime of that customer, the value of that customer is to keep them as a lifetime customer is partner-driven. So I got to look at the entire journey now that never ends because it gets renewed every 30 days or every year forever. I just want to jump on one stat that you just threw out there. 28 touch points. Then we'll be sitting across from business leaders and talk about 12 to 18 t touch points on average, 28 touch points. Tell me more. Yeah. So let's not use the word touch point because that would seem more sales or marketing okay. specific. Let's talk about moments. It seems more psychologically <laughs> safe to, to use that word. So let me take you back to the last time you bought a car. And Today, there's 63 major manufacturers of cars that build 365 brands of car. So you're not going to go on 365 test drives. That's one every day of the year. 
you're going to start to narrow things down. Do I want an SUV? Do I want it to be electric? You'd start to think, but what are the moments early in that journey as you start to build that funnel and narrow things down? Not till you want a mid-sized SUV that's electric. Have you got it down to something that your head can contain and, and move forward with? And you're using YouTube. You might be using social media. You're talking to your neighbors and friends. Those are all moments in time. They may be very simple, mm-hmm. like reading a tweet. It could be complex, like reading an ebook or listening to a full podcast like this. It's all part of the moments. And we all have psychology. Some of us love podcasts and others don't use that media. So in that world, as you move along your car buying journey and you're narrowing things down and you're getting reinforcement from those you trust, guess what? Around the mid journey, you start going on the website, configure price, quote your car, build out the color and the rims you want. You start to get a little bit excited about exactly how it's going to look. And then before visiting the dealership, you go and download the invoice price. You know what they paid for it. You download the back end rebates this month, any funny money that's going on within a hundred dollars, what that car is going to cost. You don't need that old school eight hours as they try to get you a deal. The manager, you'd rather like Carvana, just deliver the car on my driveway, hand me the keys. I'd happy to pay you a hundred dollars more just to avoid ever going to the dealership experience. But that's your 28 moments. And you could count all the times and all the things you did and all those YouTube videos you watched of your car racing up against the Tesla or something. Those are all moments. And everybody's competing for those moments. You can imagine 63 manufacturers competing for those moments. And guess what? In the post-cookie world, you can't go buy those moments anymore. Because your privacy is protected by Apple and soon to be by Google, they have 99% mobile share and 82% desktop browsing share combined. You get to the internet through two companies, $2 trillion companies, multi-trillion dollar companies. And so when those two companies decide there's no more cookies, there are no more cookies. So whether you're Ford or Mercedes or Toyota, you can't go buy your 28 moments. You got to go partner with that YouTube creator. You got to go partner with the ebook creator. You got to go partner inside those social networks and those circle of trust that you built. And if those people surrounding you have led you to a certain SUV brand, then they get credit and they should get credit in the new economics of partnering to getting you to the dance. If the dealership takes your money, perfect. They should earn whatever that's worth, but it could be a digital. Most states and provinces are now taken because of Tesla or taken down the requirements you have to buy from a dealer. So you could buy it direct on a website, especially for electric cars. They look like a computer. Then every 30 days after that, whether you take it to that dealership for service or it drives itself to get its own service at three in the morning. I I put a 20 minute video on the future of cars on YouTube myself talking about partnerships. But that's it. That's the 28 moments. The same goes for when you buy software. The same goes when you buy any considered purchase. It's the average of moments that land you in the vendor, the brand, the decision you make. I really appreciate the language that you're using to describe this because we're seeing a radical shift in how organizations are viewing demand and how they are shifting attribution and where they source net new prospects and and leads and how they qualify this is all shifting very fast and and it's fascinating that it's being driven by them being forced to because of the two monoliths are making changes that are they're pushing them in that direction and i think it's positive 
with a just a nudge. <laughs> Wanted to take you back to what you were just describing around these services that are being wrapped around SaaS and other providers and and ask you about some research that Canalis published a few months ago around partners outpacing vendors rapidly. Why do you think partners are outpacing vendors? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so in, in one case, vendors are limited by the product SKUs that they sell. And either it's a hot category, which last year at this time, PCs were really hot coming off the pandemic and stuff. This year, it's a disaster. They're down multi double digits. So as a vendor, it is what it is. There is certain demand for the product, uh, but partners aren't linked directly to the sell of the product. So if somebody's extending for, let's keep on PCs, if somebody's extending their PC lifecycle and going to keep those laptops around for year four, maybe year five, guess what? Services, these things break more often. They need more managed services. They need more white glove service. You need, might need some hot spares. There's a whole bunch of, I could think of 20 different services around an aging fleet. So where Lenovo, HP, and Dell may not be so happy because sales are down, it's actually provided an opportunity for the partners to earn more money. Now there's 250 other product categories. If you think about software, if you think about other things, all of these demand areas, the, the market TAM, the current demand for a certain category, partners have all kinds of headroom to go build against the multiplier, to go build new skills, go build education, trainings. Uh, so where I was an implementation partner, now I can become an implementation and integration partner because now I have an integration first buyer. I was a reseller, but I'm going to start to move into managed services. I was a digital agency doing creative work, but I'm going to start working now more on compliance and other types of things. So I've got all these opportunities, again, upwards of six or seven times the sale of the product itself, where I can go build practices around it. I could make two or three or four dollars for every dollar the manufacturer, every dollar the vendor makes. And that's the sky's the limit in terms of that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it seems like vendors are leaning in on this. We've been to some recent conferences where different vendor channel programs are announcing that this is the year of the partner or the age of the partner. And it seems to be a critical strategic imperative on their end to invest in partner value creation. Is that something that's evident on in your research? It, it is. And I always ask the second question because for decades, I've seen it be the year of the partner, but show me the money as, as the movie would say. Right. But, but show me what that means to you. So define what partner means to you. If it's somebody who helps the customer along those first 28 moments and gets recognized, monitored, measured, and managed for that, uh, a partner that helps that customer procure and provision the technology, like 24% of marketplace deals are today are partners clicking by on behalf of the customer. They're not the reseller of record, but they're literally have their finger on the trigger. That partner who helps every 30 days get that product to be sticky, get that product to be renewed and locked in so you have a customer for life, that partner who's doing co-innovation, creating software and hardware, and it could be RPA or bots. It could be all kinds of co-innovation and value creation. 
all the kinds of strategic and business alliance. So there's so many things a partner does. So if you're still defining partner as somebody who collects the customer's money, I guess the year of the partner ought to be paying them more for collecting the customer's money. But what we're seeing pretty much across the industry is that year or the era of the partner is to recognize what partners actually do. And most vendors, this is going to ring true. Hmm. You've always had a long tail of partners that aren't active. And you always get together with your colleagues and say, how do we engage them? How do we enable them? If we just enabled our long tail, we'd be, guess what? After 40 years, we finally figured out they're there for a reason. Because you've always measured them on their ability to sell. And 90% of partners are just not that interested in collecting the customer's money. So you've got this whole laundry list of partners out there and you're judging a fish by their ability to climb a tree. When you start looking at those partners and asking them the right questions, what do you actually do? Oh, wow. Thanks for asking. I do this and this, which is hugely valuable. It allows me to grow. I'm very profitable. And by the way, if you just recognize me for that, I'd be happy. But you keep putting me on these spreadsheets and sorting by revenue. I'm just never going to collect their money unless the customer literally forces me to, or they buy my procurement services if I'm a system integrator. But stop measuring me on only one KPI. And if you can measure me 10, 20, 50, 100 different ways, I will show you I'm one of your best partners. I should be a platinum, even though I've never sold a nickel of your product. To most channel managers, that's heresy, but that's coming to be true. And if you truly believe this is the error of the partner, you start to think seriously about point systems that do monitor, measure, and manage all of these points of value as opposed to just the point of sale. You start moving money around and opportunity around to all these points of value. And you start to truly culturally from the top down, bottom up, become that partner first partner-friendly company, not just when it's at the end of the quarter and you've got to close your commission. Jay, this is just music to my ears because what we've been really championing for some time is the not just the KPI of being increased consumption or increased sales of widgets, but the confines of that being on a quarterly basis is totally incorrect to place on a partner's and their expectation and therefore in the way that you tier them in your partner program because they're out there selling relationships and uh, attempting to create longer client lifetime value in a way that the vendor can't recognize or reward them or support them. And, and that's something that we're continually feeding back into the channel programs is to divorce themselves from those quarterly business cycles. So if you look at your partner's types and there's over 20 models, but if you look where they land around the customer and if, you know, your top affiliates, for example, your top one or 2% of affiliates should be platinum, your top one or 2% of advocates, ambassadors of affinity style partners your top one or 2% of resellers, your top one or 2% of MSPs, system integrators, implementers, integrators, your top one or 2% of the companies that secure and make your product compliant, the top one or 2% of companies who back up disaster recovery, you make it continuity. So if, if you think of all the steps of getting a customer for life and then start awarding your platinum status to the top one or two that have just 
over and above. They made the professional leagues in that slim category. Those are your platinum partners. And then the next tier are your gold, the next tier are your, but it's not just sorted by revenue. That's only one of the swim lanes mm. of perhaps dozens that you're now measuring. And, and I want to celebrate the best of the best at doing what they do. And again, that fish climbing the tree or let, let's not try to get a football player to be a hockey player. Let's just celebrate that there's professional leagues in every sport. I really appreciate this in the context of partnerships as well. It feel moving away from just a, a single KPI that is sales related into all of these lanes feels more like a partnership where you're understanding the unique attributes of the other organization and the brand and the people they're in and then what they're bringing into your channel program and therefore you as a vendor it just feels more like a partnership that's where we're going and people stopped using the word channel because channel was uh, a shortened form of channels of distribution and that's shortened for people who collect the customer's market. And so that was really for the first decades of this mm. industry, the only way we could measure. It was just too complicated. We didn't have the technology. Over my shoulder, I have 200 entrepreneurial companies who are reimagining partnering. There's 11 islands of innovation now. Just in the non-transaction partners that we're talking about, there's five islands of innovation of where you can invest new processes and workflows and people and programs and underlying technology to automate all that. This is where the future's going. Wall Street has got involved. They put in over $3 billion into these categories last year. And they're fueling this next decade of the ecosystem, as I've coined it. But most companies, 82% of companies are investing more in partnerships, as we speak, in every industry of every size of every country. 76% of CEOs think they can't do it alone. Whether you're in pharmaceuticals, banking, insurance, manufacturing, it doesn't matter where you are. 76% of CEOs think their current business model will be unrecognizable in five years. And ecosystems are the number one reason why. It's happening everywhere. And all of us, this will raise all boats when we realize what this change is happening, how quickly it's happening. And our clients, our vendors, our distributors, our partners, everyone's in this together. And again, we're all part of this bigger economy around ecosystems, which will be tens of trillions of dollars by the end of this decade. That's uh, fascinating and exciting. I um, wanted to shift gears into uh, another topic, uh, albeit from our limited view, something that we've been seeing come up in strategic discussions. I'm based in Sydney. We've just started a new financial year in Australia. In strategic conversations, there's been an increase in focus around accelerating various service components, most popular being partners shifting into managed security as a service. We've seen some unified communications as a service. There's been some talk, although I haven't seen any real go-to-market for it, but there's been some talk even as contact center as a service. Do you, from Canalis's point of view, see increased investment in these additional as-a-services? Yeah, so aligned with my previous stat of 76% of CDOs, I think their business model will be unrecognizable. The future business model, by the way, is subscription consumption. Everyone who sells you your toothbrush right up to your car, everybody who sells you software 
hardware, and services are thinking about how to charge you monthly forever. A Dell, a Cisco, an HP, a Lenovo, all the client-server biggest companies are all 100% committed to subscription consumption. It helps their valuation with Wall Street. And you even have Michael Dell out talking about 10% of the orders now in infrastructure are coming in via Apex. You have GreenLake having triple-digit growth quarter on quarter. So everything's changing into this new model. So when you put AAS on the back of 250 categories in the tech industry, the $5 trillion industry we're in, guess what? There's a huge partner opportunity to go and make that a, a reality. So that's where everybody's thinking is, and it's just a race on who can get there the fastest. So it's not just security and the $82 billion security software industry. It's the $300 billion of services that kicks out. And the most successful services are not project-based because if you get a valuation for those or you're going to be acquired with those, people are going to pay either pennies to the dollar or up to a dollar. But if you can translate that into MSSP, managed security, and you get a longer term, more sticky customer base that's more predictable, guess what? The multiples on your EBITDA or the multiples on your revenue start hitting maybe 10 to buy into something as hot as security that's growing at 27% a year, buying into a place like Australia that is growing rapidly and, and people that can corner the market, very smart distributors like a next gen in Australia, really coming around security to orchestrate a lot of that value. And again, the partners, the vendors, uh, I know the vendors in Australia that have had a lot of success, triple digit growth, and it all comes together. Again, let's, the train has left the station. Let's hook our caboose to that train. And again, all boats rise, but as a service is driving so much of this multiplier, driving so much of this valuation that you need to be on that. Agreed. Totally agree. It's a, a fantastic shift. We're seeing people move very fast, which is excellent because as you say, it's ripe for the picking. Last comment. I've been following you online for a long while now. I found an article that you wrote four years ago. You were talking about how channel marketers need to consider themselves as community managers. One of the key phrases and key takeaways from that article, you were encouraging marketers and leaders to be visible every day. It's four years later, 2023. Is this still part of your thinking or in what ways have you evolved? No, this is not only is it part of my thinking, but if I go and look at the fastest growing companies, for example, around managed services, the companies that have created billionaires like Datto and ConnectWise, these are all community-driven companies. There's nothing remarkable about their sales or marketing. They never ran a Super Bowl ad, but they were in the grassroots of the community. People who recognize in Australia that there's 15,000 VARs and MSPs, they might read CRN or RN, they might read Channel Life out in New Zealand. They go to the Hamilton Island event, which I spoke at every single year. They go to maybe a Telstra event, which I also spoke at. So I got my two or three trips to Australia every single year. But they understand the community. They understand the podcasts like yours. They understand the associations like CompTIA and 
Mohib Moses and the work he does there with the CompTIA, they understand that there are 14 spheres of influence of every partner because there's not just 15,000 partners. They have on average eight people each. So you're starting to talk about hundreds of thousands of people in Australia in this industry. And if you focus on what they read, where they go, and most importantly, the people they follow, you'll find that winning in the country, winning in the region is a bottoms up community play. So I pointed at like a Datto and their local person who lived this was James Burgle, now with Pax8. Globally was Rob Ray, also now with Pax8. But they get this and they know that you don't just go into Australia and run a big set of TV ads and get billboards up and down the Gold Coast. You engage with people the way they like to be engaged with, surrounded through, to, and with the people they trust. It's not you standing out on the platform. It's you working inside the community, earning trust for yourself and your company and getting those loudest people, most influential super connectors in the industry from Sydney to Perth and from Melbourne to Brisbane, talking your story in every little event, in every article, in every blog, in every ebook, in every podcast, in every association meeting, in every peer group meeting every vendor thing, every distributor thing, you start to show up every day and you start to get to that seven times marketing rule. That's community. I heard that at Dicker Data. I heard that in ARN Magazine. I heard this over at CompTIA when I went to my association meeting. I heard that over in a podcast. I heard this over in my peer group that I did with ConnectWise. I heard this in the, guess what? It adds up. On the seven times rule, you've heard something seven times, the human brain tricks and goes, I need to learn more about this because I've heard it too many times to be a coincidence. I need to go to that website. I need to read more. I need to ask some questions. And that's community. You don't get that in any other medium. And, and rather than hiring your next batch of salespeople, your next batch of marketing people, given today's economy, you can't do any of that. You're, it behooves you to go and figure out the community thing because 99% of vendors don't get it. And this is the one thing that's blocking their growth. And it's one thing their fastest growing competitor probably does get. it. We had James on the podcast talking about Pax8 Academy. And while that's the, the wrapper that they've put around it, it really is community building. And we really attribute their fast growth at Pax8 around that community building that it's underpinning and over time, whipped into a, an incredible growth story. And, and we really see that as a prime case study for what you're describing. Yeah. And we, had, we were there. They were at our event, Singapore, last year. And they had signed up 700 new partners in their first few months. It's absolutely the fastest growing in the region. I just went and spoke at their big event here in the U.S., a big global event, first one. Mm -hmm. And it's just there's 1,300 people in the yep. audience standing remotely, waving money and how excited they were. And again, no TV advertising, no traditional floors full of salespeople, the way you'd expect another distributor might run. But you can't go to any Marriott or any Holiday Inn or any hotel anywhere with 20 partners without seeing somebody from there or something from there contributing. And that's just, that's it. It's, it's a feeling, it's a culture. It's again, top down. 
Um, I, I know all the founders really well. Uh, bottoms up, I, I met with their board while I was there. I met with investors while I was there. Everybody feels it. And it, you can't mimic that in front of a partner. You can't pretend. You can't just have one channel-friendly person in a channel-unfriendly vendor. That only goes so far. But when they just feel it from, again, the mailroom to the CEO and everybody around, that creates a movement. That creates momentum. And everything comes from there. So community is probably the most important thing I talk about to anyone in this industry. Partners, vendors, distributors. Speaking of community, Canalis Forums are coming up. Wanted to conclude with that. In what ways are you excited about, about the forums later this year? Yeah, I publish a list of 218 channel events around the world. And it behooves my company because we do run events. But most of them are bottoms up. Most of them are focused on getting every MSP and every VAR and everybody in a room. The forums forever, for two decades, have been top down. They're the biggest events in Europe. They're the biggest events in Asia Pacific. But the CEOs of HP and Lenovo and Michael Dell and others will come. There's a captain's dinner the first night. It looks like a Davos con conference. Private jets coming in and billionaire partners and really large vendors. It's a really important event, not only for kind of the research and the, the conversations that happen, but connecting people at a very senior level. So if you're a partner, if you're a vendor, if you're a distributor, thinking more top down, the biggest chunk of your TAM is sitting in one room. This year it's in Bangkok. Other years it's been in Sydney. Last year it was in, in Singapore. But it's that type of event that's focused that way. There's over a thousand people there, but it's not intended to bring 10,000 people. It's not a trade show. There's no trinkets. There's no trade mm -hmm. show booths. It's intended to get there and have one-on-one -on -one meetings. You want to meet with the head of Pax8? They're there. You want to head with the head of Ingram or TD Cynics or other distributors? There's hundred distributors at a C-suite that are there. The vendors at the C-suite are there. The partners at the C-suite are all there. And that's what makes the event different than anything else that happens in our industry. Jay, I'm deeply appreciative of your time. I thank you for your insights. We're big fans of all your work down here in Australia. We're continuously cheerleading what Canalis is doing. Keep up the great work and uh, can't wait to catch up again and pick up the conversation around to the next step of the economy's evolution. Thank you so much. And here's a quick story to close it out. My mom lives in Canada, but she owns a camper van in Australia. And once a year, she'll go and drive from Sydney to Perth in a camper van, spending upwards of four to six months in Australia every year. So I've got a strong kinship in, in addition to all the travel that, that I do each year to, to, to Australia. That's amazing. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.